Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Philip Coggan, the Economist Buttonwood columnist, and this is Money Talks. Later in the program, artificial intelligence and why, thanks to its deep pool of data, China is said to lead the world. You mine that data, you feed that for algorithms, you develop a service, which then allows you to collect more data, improve that service, feed that back. So it's a kind of basically a feedback loop. And the Big Mac Index and purchasing power parity. How much burger does your money get you around the world? But very few currencies are overvalued against the dollar, according to the Big Mac Index. It's usually the Swiss franc and then usually the Nordic currencies. But to start... America's annual GDP and a possible link to climate change. There's a new paper just out which looks at how climate change is likely to affect locations within the US and how those climatic shifts will affect local economies. I'm joined from Washington, D.C. by The Economist's senior editor and free exchange columnist, Ryan Avent. Ryan, what does the new report say? Well, the new report looks at a few different things, and I I think its main overarching goal is to try to map particular changes in global temperature onto the the damages that the U.S. economy would would face. So they're trying to work out for a one-degree rise, what's the cost in terms of GDP to the U.S., and how does that, that cost rise as temperature goes up? And they work out that the cost, unsurprisingly, uh, increase with each degree. And this, in its own way, is a contribution because for, for some time there's been a disagreement about whether the U.S. itself might end up a winner as, as a result of, of mild warming because agricultural yields might increase in the north. And as it turns out, even for small increases in global temperature, the U.S. is a net loser. What's the sort of range of estimates of decline in GDP? They look first at a, at a change uh, in temperature of, of just one degree and note that the range there is relatively narrow, uh, and they say it's it, the U.S. GDP uh, each year will be up to 1.7% less than it otherwise would be, which is, is not something to sort of sniff at, um, but it's manageable. But then if you increase um, the expected temperature rise to, to 4 or 5 degrees, you start seeing declines in GDP relative to the counterfactual of up to 6%, which is which is quite a lot. And if you if you go up to 8 degrees Celsius, which is toward the upper range of current estimates, it could be a loss of GDP to the U.S. of up to 16%, which is which is pretty huge. Uh, but then the thing that, that, that they go into next is that this is for the U.S. As economy as a whole, and the distributional effects are, are quite different. So some counties within that 15% loss would, would do okay, and others would, would suffer much more in, in terms of decline than 15%. And where would be worst hit? Well, the really unfortunate thing that this paper points out is that the losses would tend to be concentrated in places that are already fairly poor. And it's, it's largely areas to the south and southeast of the U.S. Those states would see big declines in agricultural yields as temperatures rose. They'd be affected by increased uh, storm activity and increased hurricanes uh, intensity uh, interacting with sea level rise. 
Uh, and then also there would be uh, effects in terms of rising crime, which uh, crime tends to increase as temperature goes up. And those effects are concentrated in the south because if you if you go to the northern states, they actually achieve, enjoy some benefits as temperatures rise because fewer people are dying as a result of harsh winters. Some crops that wouldn't grow in, in the northern climes can uh, grow uh, as temperatures rise. Uh, and so there's a, you know, it's not just the overall loss that we're looking at, but we're also seeing um, that climate change adds to America's problem with inequality, which is already quite significant, rather than kind of dampening it, as we might have hoped. And do we see any effects from um, sea levels rising? Uh, we've all seen maps of what Florida might look like if the sea level rises a couple of feet. Sea level rise is something that they, they look at and it does generate some costs. Uh, a lot of the, the, the most you know, the most serious sea level rise is going to happen outside of the, the sort of frame that they look at, which is the last two decades of this century. The main negative impact they see from higher sea levels is, is when those higher sea levels interact with storms. And if you look at, at where big hurricanes tend to hit the United States, it's along the southeast coast. You do occasionally get some, like Hurricane Sandy, which struck New York and caused quite a lot of damage there. And, and certainly there's the possibility for, for cities in uh, the northeast and New England, which are relatively rich, to take losses as a result of that. But much more of the cost would be focused on on the Gulf Coast, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, Florida, places that for the most part are not, uh, they're not that well off relative to the U.S. average. Do you think this report is likely to get much political traction? Uh, Americans haven't always been the most concerned about climate change and the current administration has withdrawn from the Paris Agreement. Do you, do you think this is going to hit headlines? I certainly think the the story will the paper will get some attention. Whether it's going to change anyone's mind, I think is less clear and less likely. I mean, the the sort of unfortunate thing is that a lot of these states that are going to be, you know, facing the biggest costs are heavily Republican and are represented by uh, senators who who are among the most skeptical about climate change. And uh, the places that are are not going to be hurt as much are, are places where people are more keen to to act. So. You know, possibly people will be startled by the uh, the results of the study and, and, and move to action, but I, I'm not getting my hopes up. Of course, by the time these effects come through, most of those senators will be long out of office. Thanks very much to The Economist senior editor and free exchange columnist Ryan Avent. Next, artificial intelligence is widely considered the technology industry's future, powering everything from digital assistance to self-driving cars. And thanks to its deep pool of data, China has a chance to lead the world. News that's not pleased everyone. In July, it emerged that the Pentagon has raised concerns about Chinese firms buying American AI startups. It's just a couple of years since China overtook America as the world's main source of research papers on deep learning, an AI technique. I'm joined here in our London studio by The Economist technology editor Ludwig Siegler. Ludwig, why is China so strong in this area? Quite a few reasons. I mean, to understand, you, you have to keep in mind what, what, what you need to, to be good at AI. You need computing power, lots of computing power. You need venture capital. Uh, you need the right regulatory environment. You need talent and research, and you need data. And in all of those areas, China has, has a, uh, an advantage. In a particular data, I would say China is the country of the most, at least, consumer data in the world. And the concern is they're very strong in research, particularly as well. 
let's say the cutting edge research is still done in the U.S., but China is catching more quickly. I mean, one thing you have to see is that a lot of, even in the U.S., a lot of people who who do cutting edge research in, in AI are Chinese. They're moving back. Some of them are moving back. For example, the guy who runs Baidu, China's biggest search engine, is Chinese. Uh, he has worked for Microsoft before. You have a few of those cases. But uh, Chinese universities have launched AI programs, quite a lot of them, uh, and that they're churning out papers. I mean, those the, the people doing the research there and, and, and studying there. So I think that there, there's, in terms of research and talent, there's there's it's almost as important as, as data. I mean, data is more important, but uh, China is catching up in, in, in kind of in academics or the science as well. So we've seen in some areas of tech, network effects, internet search, for example, with Google, where the company that can establish a lead starts to dominate the industry. Could that happen with Chinese AI, and why might that be a problem? That, of course, could happen with Chinese AI. I mean, let, let me, I mean, what you just said, kind of let, let me spell that out. So the, so the, the, the network effect in, in data is kind of you, you have a lot of data. You mine that data. You feed that for algorithms. You develop a service, an AI-powered service, which then allows you to collect more data, improve that service, feed that back. So it's a kind of basically a feedback loop. And the earlier you're in the game, the better, uh, like self-driving car, uh, the race is on to kind of who who's, who has the best data, who can develop the best self-driving cars. And uh, China can uh, can do this in, or already is doing this in some areas, let's say face recognition or speech recognition. So because it's it's more difficult to type uh, in Mandarin or with Chinese characters, uh, a lot more Chinese use their voice. So the company is providing that that search service, and I think in that case, Baidu collects a lot of uh, voice samples, and those voice samples then help uh, Baidu to improve its speech recognition service, and so on and so forth. And you can see that in other areas like face recognition, there's quite a few very good uh, uh, companies with very good face recognition services in China, like uh, a company called Miek VII. They build that in their cameras, and, and I've, I've been to their uh, headquarters in, in, in Beijing. You enter those offices, and your face is uh, almost immediately recognized. The employees, they don't badge in. They just walk in. And all over the office, there's cameras. And, and you can see on video walls, if, if a face pops up, immediately has a wide rectangle around that face and some information next to that face. So because China has a lot of data, a lot, a big pool of uh, uh, pictures, photographs, uh, in that case, provided by the government, they keep all those photos. They can use that to jumpstart almost that type of, that type of a service. Why are people in the West concerned about this potential for Chinese dominance? One problem is that uh, China is uh, quite uh, protectionist when it comes to data. So uh, Chinese uh, data can uh, cannot leave the country, and only Chinese companies are allowed, or Chinese-owned companies are allowed to handle that data. Not, not American ones. They have to have subsidiaries owned by Chinese if they, if they want to do that. That's one problem. And I think that's going to be a problem going forward. And there certainly will be American or European lobbyists pointing that out and, and, and telling their governments to pry, pry China open. The other issue is, of course, in China, and that's one of the advantages China has, uh, regulation, privacy regulation, for example, is quite lax. I mean, there are lots of laws covering that, but they're generally not enforced. Uh, so basically anything goes. Uh, helps the Chinese. The question is, uh, what does that do to, uh, uh, I mean, do you want to use... AI services that are basically built on, on lax privacy laws. I, I think some people in the West will have problems with that. Ludwig, thank you very much. Thanks, Phil. If you have any thoughts or opinions on what you hear on Money Talks, such as the link between climate change and GDP, 
or China's predicted dominance in artificial intelligence, then do get in touch. Which is exactly what Stephen D. Rader from Prince George in British Columbia in Canada has done. Stephen heard the recent edition of Money Talks in which we looked at the German economy. Your report on current account surpluses struck a bizarrely moralistic tone, with the clear implication of your analysis that Germany is bad because they do not consume as much as other countries. Isn't it possible that the Germans are actually good and the rest of us are bad? The world is awash with useless junk peddled by desperate advertisers trying to break into our internet-mediated entertainment bubbles. Economists don't distinguish between society-enriching environmentally sustainable spending and its opposite. But journalists at The Economist can and should. I suggest we encourage the Americans to emulate Germany and not the other way round. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio. Or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Finally, the Big Mac Index. It's based on purchasing power parity. The idea being that in the long run, currencies should converge, such that the same amount of dollars buys the same amount of goods and services around the world. I'm joined here in the Money Talk studio by the economist data journalist Wade Zhou. Wade, what does the Big Mac Index show this time about the strength of the dollar? Well, it's interesting. Uh, there has, overall, there hasn't been that much movement um, across currencies. But the dollar itself has actually moved quite a bit since we last looked at the uh, index in January. Back then, shortly after Donald Trump was elected, there was a sort of surge in optimism in America about Donald Trump's policies. Mr. Trump promised that he would cut taxes, he would boost infrastructure spending. And the thought there was that this would sort of increase America's economy, it would increase inflation. People also believed that the Federal Reserve, America's central bank, would boost interest rates in response. The net effect of all of this would be that the dollar would go up in value. But since January, uh, something funny has happened. Traders seem to have sort of lost their faith in Mr. Trump. They no longer believe that Mr. Trump will be able to pass any of his legislation anytime soon. And the dollar has slipped a fair amount since then. And in Big Mac terms, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because the dollar looks overvalued and compared with how much you pay for a burger relative to the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, this is kind of a vindication of the... Big Mac theory in that I think around 30 out of 33 of the major currencies we look at are sort of undervalued against the dollar. And the fact that they are sort of now converging against the dollar makes sense. And which is the cheapest relative to the dollar? There are two currencies that really stick out in terms of their valuation against the dollar. Both the Malaysian ringgit and the Mexican peso are extremely cheap. So if you want a very cheap burger, you head to Mexico City and Kuala Lumpur. Exactly. And which currencies are overvalued relative to the dollar? You said three were. Yeah, but very few currencies are overvalued against the dollar, according to the Big Mac Index. Um, it's usually the Swiss franc and then usually the Nordic currencies. Uh, so right now, the Swedish kroner is also overvalued against the dollar. So let's give a practical example. What does a Big Mac cost in America at the moment? Our data show that the Big Mac costs around $5.30. And in Switzerland, where things look more expensive? We currently have Big Macs at six fifty in Swiss francs in Switzerland, which translates to about $6.72. And what about Britain? Big Macs in Britain currently are about £3.20 or $4.10. Now, this isn't a surefire way of uh, testing currencies, is it? Why might it not work? Well, I, I, one big problem is that labor costs differ greatly across uh, the world. So 
this is especially problematic in emerging world countries where labor costs are much lower. You would clearly expect a Big Mac to cost much less to produce in, say, Taiwan than, say, America. My thanks to The Economist data journalist Wei Zhou. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in the show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. Do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist.